You're listening to audio from Park Church. More info and resources are online at parkchurch.org. Take care. Good morning and happy Easter. Today's scripture reading is Luke 24, verses 13 through 35, which can be found on page 831 of the Bibles in the pew back in front of you, the brand new Bibles for Easter. Um, If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that, and that can be yours as our gift to you today. That day, very, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. He is risen. He is risen indeed. It doesn't get old. Been saying it and hearing it all day and loving it every time. Uh, He is risen indeed. That passage actually comes, that phrase comes from this passage at the end when the followers of Jesus are beginning to kind of bring back these reports that he... He's risen. And other people would say, he's risen indeed. Like, yeah, it's true. Can you believe it? And the joy that they experience on that reality, getting their minds and their hearts around that reality transformed their life and has transformed the world. And uh, it's fun to celebrate that with you all. It is certainly my favorite Sunday of the year. And not just because we get to have a big celebration. It's because of who we get to celebrate. When we say he's risen, when we, we say we're celebrating the risen King Jesus, what we're saying is he's alive that he's here, uh, that he wants to work among us, even in this passage where you see him drawing near to these two travelers on the way to 
Emmaus, he's still doing that today through his spirit, drawing near to people to transform their life, to meet us in disappointments, to meet us in pain, to meet us in confusion and disorientation. He meets us on our journey, on the road of life, and brings to us this hope, the hope of forgiveness, the hope of redemption, the hope of life everlasting. And so I'm praying that he would actually do that today. Uh, What we're going to do this morning is a little bit different than what I've historically done on on Easter services. We're just going to walk through this story. I'm just going to bring you into this story. Part of the way Luke writes the story is inviting us to place ourselves in the story. And the two travelers here, there's one of them that is named Cleopas, and he's a historical figure. The other, we don't know. It's remaining unnamed. And there's this invitation for us to imagine in our own journey, in our own life, what, what is it like to interact with and to engage with, to encounter the risen Lord Jesus and to wrestle with the reality of his resurrection and what that would mean for us as we walk through our life in this world. And so we're going to pray that the Holy Spirit would do that this morning, uh, that in your own journey with whatever you're carrying, whatever you're processing, whatever disappointments, fears, confusion, or pain you experience in this life, that Jesus would draw near to you and give you an unshakable hope a hope that's rooted and founded in his resurrection this morning. So would you join me as we pray to the risen King Jesus. Um, Jesus, we thank you for being with us. You promised even before your ascension, I will be with you always, always, all the way to the end of the age. And that means you're with us today. And so I pray through your spirit you would Meet us on our journey and our road through life where we feel confusion, you draw near, where we feel disappointment, where we feel fears and pain, where we feel grief as we process losses, where we had hopes and expectations and dreams that have been dashed. I pray that you would draw near to us and give us a hope that's rooted not in our circumstances but in the reality of your redeeming love and your victorious resurrection. Would you give us unshakable hope that would allow us to live in this life with freedom. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So I want you to imagine you are one of these travelers. To give you a little bit of your story, uh, you grew up in Israel in a little town called Emmaus, which is around seven miles away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the religious and the political epicenter of the region, and you grew up seven miles away in this town called Emmaus. You had a decent family, Uh, Maybe your mom and dad, they're doing the best they can, Uh, but life was hard. Life was hard. It was hard for a lot of reasons, but the most significant, the most obvious reason is your whole family and your whole community lived under the pain of Roman occupation. Roman occupation. Some decades before, Rome had torn through the known world and was ransacking and occupying and displacing people all around the land of Israel. In fact, It's likely that your grandfather, and you've heard stories about this, had joined a whole coalition of people that had sought to oppose Rome from coming into Emmaus. And likely your grandfather and hundreds, thousands of others had died trying to defend this land from the Roman occupation, but they are brutally defeated. And so now decades have passed and and Rome has continued to enact these oppressive and painful policies on your people. So as you grow up, maybe even as a little kid, you've watched your mom be mistreated and mocked and jeered and harassed by Roman soldiers, but she stays quiet. In fact, maybe one time your dad tried to stand up to the Roman guards and to stop them, but then he was beat and arrested and imprisoned. 
And this is the sort of world that you lived in. These are the sort of things that were happening all the time. You just learn how to make your way through life. And as you got older, you realized that your family, you know, was struggling to make ends meet, struggling to put food on the table. And so you're a teenager now, and you decide you're going to find a job, and you find a trade, and you get into that trade, and you're going to start working to try to just help put food on the table. Because even though everybody's trying to contribute, it's still hard. And you get introduced to the brutal human reality of taxes, uh, which you all know about. It's April 17th. You missed it. If, if you missed your taxes, you missed it. It's late. Sorry for anxiety-inducing comments. Uh, but you get introduced to the brutal reality of taxes. In this particular system, Rome had imposed a crushing tax policy that was designed in part to demoralize all their subjugated peoples around the world to demoralize them. It was crushing. It wasn't a tax policy that worked towards your benefit or your care. It worked for the benefit of Rome across the sea, and it was crushing you. And to make matters worse, your own fellow Jewish people had, some of them had become tax collectors and were corrupt, and they were abusing this system, extorting extra money to pad their own pockets at the expense of families like yours that were struggling to get by. So every day, it's sustenance living. You're just hoping to get meals on the table. You're hoping that you don't get beat or get arrested. And you just have a crushed, demoralized existence. And your dream, your deepest hope, your greatest desire, your most fervent prayer is, God, would you please redeem us from Roman oppression? Would you please set us free? And that prayer isn't coming out of a vacuum. It's a prayer because it's rooted in your history. You remember stories, you grew up with the stories about how God long ago had delivered your ancestors from oppression by the Egyptians and he had redeemed them through the blood of a sacrificial lamb, setting them free through a man named Moses. And the prophets that had come along throughout the generations would look back at that event and they'd look at the reality of these kinds of moments and they'd say, a day's coming when God will redeem us again. He's gonna send us a new Moses who's gonna lead us into a new redemption and it's gonna be a new deliverance. And that sort of promise had framed your hope. It gave you something to hang on to in the midst of the pain, something to believe in, something to wait for, and you waited and your family had waited and generations had waited. It was hard to keep waiting. But every year, every year, you would take a week out of your year to take a break from your job, and all the people of Israel would make their way to Jerusalem. So your family, your community would travel seven miles. You'd leave Emmaus, you'd go up to Jerusalem, and when you'd go to Jerusalem, you'd celebrate a week-long feast. And at the culmination of that feast on Friday, you'd celebrate a Passover meal. And the Passover meal was looking back at that story, at the story of your redemption. You'd remember how God had delivered you through the blood of a lamb and you would pray and hope and wait for him to come and do it again. Deliver us, redeem us. Come and redeem Israel. It was hard to keep waiting, but this year something felt different. This year something felt different. There was news buzzing around the region about a new prophet. You actually have a friend, his name's Cleopas. Remember your buddy Cleopas, everybody? Got him? You know, everybody has a friend Cleopas. Uh, Cleopas had maybe, maybe had gone to visit some relatives in Galilee or something like that, and, and he came back with these wild stories, wild stories about a, a new prophet. His name's Jesus. He's from Nazareth of all places, and as soon as you hear that, you're like, did anything good come from Nazareth? Like, that's weird. You're trying not to hold that against him because everybody knows it's not a cool place, kind of low-key, and so finally you're like, well, you're hearing these stories, and you think, man, maybe there is something special about this guy. You're hearing stories of miracles, and not just like little miracles, like major miracles, like storms being calmed, people 
getting deliverance from demonic forces, people being healed, people being raised from the dead, thousands of people being fed in these single sittings. And it's starting to get captivating. As time goes on, Cleopas has shared with you his stories, but you have other reliable friends that are saying, no, I saw it too, I heard it too. And at some point you start to believe, maybe this is the one who came to redeem Israel. And so this year when you head up to Jerusalem for this festival, you've got some new excitement. You've got some rising sense of anticipation because you've heard Jesus is coming too. And so you and Cleopas, you know, you get your bags and other friends and you start making your way to Jerusalem. It's the Sunday before Passover on that Friday. And as you're coming to Jerusalem, you're like, I want to see this guy by myself. I want to see him with my own eyes. And, and you see these huge crowds and that crowd, you hear that there's always crowds around Jesus. So you draw near to the crowd and sure enough on that Sunday, you draw near and you see him for the first time. He's on his way into town and he's riding a donkey of all things, which is weird at first. You're like, why is he riding a donkey? You know? And then you're like, wait, wait, there's that prophecy in Zechariah about your king coming humble and mounted on a donkey. And about the time you're realizing that that means he really is claiming to be the Messiah, everybody else is realizing it at the same time. And, and all of a sudden, this whole rally kind of breaks out. People start cutting palm branches and waving them and singing and, and chanting. They lay out their coats on the ground, like rolling out the carpet for the coming king. And they start crying out, Hosanna, God, God has sent us a savior. He's come to redeem us, to set us free. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the one who's come in the name of the Lord. To do what? To redeem Israel. The king we've been waiting for, and at this point, you are all in. You're going to wake up every day this week, and you're going to look for Jesus, and you're going to pay attention to everything he says. You're going to watch everything he does. You're going to see him show kindness to these people and forgiveness to these people and bring healings and miracles and teaching and confronting broken systems, and you're watching him do this. And all throughout the week, every night, you go back with your friends, and you start processing with Cleopas and others the things you heard him say, the things you watched him do. And you start hearing stories from other people that have been with him in Galilee about other miracles, other stories, other teachings. Now you're all in on Jesus. He's the Redeemer. He's the one. He's the one we've been waiting for. Now as the week rolls on, you're also experiencing something else. You're noticing a rising tension a rising conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. And even as you process that, it's concerning, but nothing, nothing could prepare you for what you're about to experience. Nothing. Thursday night, you go to bed. You wake up Friday morning, and somebody comes into the household where you're staying, and they wake everybody up. Have you heard the news? Have you heard the news? What news? The Jewish council, our leaders, apprehended Jesus last night. They conducted this kangaroo court where they brought together some people and they condemned him of heresy and they delivered him over to the Romans. And they're calling for his death. They're asking the Romans to crucify him. You don't even know how to process that. It's so concerning. And so you get up that day and you're processing, you're talking, and you hear that there's a crowd gathering outside the city. And so you make your way and you follow the crowd outside the city gates and you draw near to this hill and before you can even process what's going on, you see him, Jesus, getting hoisted up on a Roman cross. He's naked, he's been beat badly, blood's coming all over his body. His head is surrounded with this thorn crown. Some people are weeping, some people are mocking him. And you don't even know how to process it. You're watching and you're watching. And you're watching him suffer. You're watching him cry out to his father. You're wondering, will anybody save him? Will anybody deliver him? What's going to happen? 
And as you watch for a couple hours, you finally see him slowly suffocate and breathe his last, bow his head, and die. A Roman soldier comes up to him and to ensure his death pierces his side, and blood and water come from his side, and you come to grips with the reality that Jesus is dead, and with him, your hopes are gone. Your hope has just been dashed. No end to Roman oppression, no deliverance from the pain and the difficulty that your family has faced for generations. Your hope has been crushed. As the day goes on, you're supposed to go celebrate the Passover meal that night. Like just within a couple hours, you're supposed to be preparing for this meal and celebrating this meal, but you can't think about preparing a lamb and remembering the redemption that God brought to the people long ago. You can't think about it. You don't want to think anything about redemption. This was supposed to be your redeemer. This is supposed to be your redeemer, and he died. How can we talk about redemption? How can we celebrate redemption? So that night, you're shocked. Your whole community's shocked. You go to bed numb, bewildered, confused. You wake up Saturday morning and just processing, and you don't even know what to think. You don't know what to say. There's fear in the community. There's sadness, grief, confusion. Some people that are part of these crowds that are yelling to crucify him are feeling guilt and shame about what they have participated in. And you don't know what to do. And so Saturday passes, you go to bed Saturday, you wake up Sunday morning and you think, I guess it's time to go back to Emmaus. What else am I gonna do? So you and Cleopas pack up your bags and you're gonna go back that seven mile journey to your life that's full of disappointment. You're gonna go with no hope. You're gonna go with no joy. You're gonna go with no freedom. And you're gonna keep experiencing life the way it was, no change things the way they used to be, the painful reality is still intact. And on the way, before you leave, you go to a community uh, where some people, some followers of Jesus were there, and, and as you're passing through, you, you hear a group of women who are really close to Jesus coming back with this interesting news that you don't know what to do with. They're saying that they had been to the tomb that morning to, again, to address some things with the body for some of their burial customs, but the, the stone was rolled away and the body wasn't there which is confusing and odd. You don't know what to think about that. But then they start talking about angels and something about them saying he's risen from the dead, but you have no idea how to process information like that. You still feel numb. You still feel heartbroken. And so in disbelief, you walk away with Cleopas and you begin your journey seven miles on the road of disappointment, pain, devastation. You are gutted. As you're walking, you begin to process and you begin to talk with Cleopas and you're processing your confusion, your grief, your sadness. There's tears, there's devastation, there's anger and frustration, a lot of confusion. And as you're going and processing these things, seemingly out of, out of nowhere, a man walks up behind you. He says, what are you guys talking about? And you and Cleopas stop. Tears are rolling down your face. And Cleopas is the one that answers, and he says, are you the only one in all of Jerusalem who doesn't know what's happened in these past days? And the man says, what things? And so you begin to tell him. You begin to tell him. He said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was mighty, a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and before all the people, and how, how our own chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. And you're still feeling so gutted, so devastated. Tears are rolling down your eyes. You're angry and sad and devastated. They crucified him. And then you say together, 
We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And now he's dead. He's dead. Saying, besides this, now there's the third day since these things have happened. And some of the women from our group had shocked us with this news that we didn't know what to do with. They were at the tomb in the morning. And when they didn't find his body, they came back saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And there's some others who were with us who went to the tomb. And they found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. They don't know what to do, and they're processing. And the way that this man responds was shocking. The man says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And now now you're confused, because a second ago, he seemed like the most ignorant man around like he'd been living under a rock. And now he's talking with this authority, talking like he knows what's going on, talking like this was all a part of some plan that the prophets from your own community had talked about long ago. And in that confusion, he just begins to walk with you and walk you through the story. Maybe he takes you back to Moses, to that moment in the Exodus, and reminds you that when God had redeemed your people from captivity in Egypt. He did it through the blood of a lamb. And the reason why he did it through the blood of the lamb is that your own people could experience mercy and deliverance when God came to bring judgment to the land of Egypt, a judgment that all human beings deserve, including the people of Israel. And maybe he would remind them of the prophets and how in the prophets, a prophet like Isaiah would look ahead and talk about the coming redemption of Israel. And it wouldn't happen through a king that comes with military pomp and pride but it had come through a humble, suffering servant who would be pierced for our transgressions, who would be crushed for our iniquities. Upon him would be a chastisement, a punishment that would bring us peace with God and bring peace to the world. It would be the stripes on his body and the wounds in his side that bring healing to the nations. And as he's sharing this story, it's like your eyes are beginning to be opened and your hearts begin to be enraptured and something starts burning in your bones. Like maybe our hope isn't gone. Maybe there is hope still. And he continues to walk with you and he walks with you through the story. Maybe he takes you back to Genesis and he reminds you how the first humans, Adam and Eve, just like all of us who have come after, had rebelled against the reign of God, had listened to the lie of an enemy who tempted them to distrust God's reign, to turn away from God's love and God's presence, and to try to build your own life, your own way, for your own agenda and your own purposes. And just as Adam and Eve and all subsequent humans, they had turned from him, they brought on themselves and on the world what the Bible calls a curse. A curse of separation from God, death, a curse that corrupted all of the created order, pain, destruction, devastation, injustice, brokenness, and darkness. And that in that moment, in the beginning of the story, God had promised that an offspring of the woman would come and he would crush the head of that enemy. But that enemy, like a serpent, would strike his heel, dealing him a deadly blow. But it would be through his death that he, he would bring victory over that enemy. It'd be through his death that he brings forgiveness for those sins. It'd be through his death that he would free us from the power of sin and the power of death. And it would be through this one that redemption would come not just to the people of Israel, but to the whole world in the creation itself. 
that Jesus had come to redeem Israel, but not just Israel. And he hadn't come to redeem them from Roman oppression. He had come to redeem them from something that's more fundamental to the human experience, our own rebellion against the creator of the universe, that we brought upon ourselves through our rebellion against God a brokenness and a bondage that we are all captive to. And Jesus' life and his death was not a tragedy. His death was the securing of human redemption, that we could be redeemed, we could be set free from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, from the effects of sin, and be through his resurrection that he opens up a doorway to new life, new life with God where you experience his love, his grace, his presence, his nearness, his kindness, his rest, his peace, his hope that you get to walk with him the way humans were designed to. This is what Jesus had come to do. This moment on the cross was not the end of their hope. It was the foundation of their hope. It was the securing of their hope. And his resurrection was opening up a whole new world where hope is available to all of us in the most devastating, the most painful, and the most dark realities. When your hope is set not in the changing of your circumstances, but in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And when you put your hope in the risen King Jesus, you have a joy and a freedom that is unshakable. When your hope is in Jesus, just like these two followers, when they learned who Jesus was, they immediately left Emmaus and went back to Jerusalem. They were not redeemed from Roman oppression, but they were redeemed. They were set free and they lived their life with joy and with faith as a part of God's movement, a movement where the good news of Jesus would spread around the world, bringing redemption, not just to Israel, but to all people everywhere, to all who believe. And when you hope in that Jesus, you are free. You're free to be honest about your sin, knowing you've been forgiven. You're free to have joy in his presence, even when you feel overwhelmed and you feel alone. You're free to trust in his sovereign, sovereign power and purposes, even when it feels like life is spiraling out of control and you feel like your whole life feels like chaos. You're free to experience his mercy when you feel regrets and shame. You're free to own your weakness, knowing that his grace and his power is unleashed in human weakness. You're free to love people with selfless, sacrificial love as you look to the one Jesus who loved even his enemies. You're free to love people who betray you and who hurt you, even the people who seem set against you. You're free to love them, and you're free to live with hope, even in the midst of life's disappointments, even in the midst of suffering, and even in the midst of death, because you know that death is not the end of the story. Death is not the end of the story. That just as Jesus rose from the dead, he's promised that he will bring resurrection to the whole world and to all who hope in him. And when you put your hope in that reality, you are thoroughly, utterly free. Free. Free knowing that Christ will come again and redeem all things and make all things new. And how can we be sure of that? Because what we've said all morning, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that you would help us now. Open our eyes right now, just like you did for the travelers on the way to Emmaus, that you would right now draw near to the men and women and the children in this room and that you would remind us, you would draw near in our disappointments, in our griefs, in our losses, in our pain, in our guilt, in our shame, and where it feels like life has fallen apart, that you would remind us of the hope of the resurrection, that you would show us your love your power, your purposes, and your ability to bring redemption and restoration to all things. So help us 
to believe in, to celebrate, and to live in the light of your resurrection. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Heart Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media at Part Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at partchurch.org. Peace and love.